Alrighty, and we're started. Hi, hello everybody, and welcome to, what is this, the eighth episode of the Calzimius Podcast? Indeed it is, indeed it is. I'm Patrick McKenzie, and here again with my co-host, Keith Burhat. Hello again. So let's see, we've got a uh, fun day planned ahead of us. Uh, the first thing we're going to be talking about is Credit Card JS at Yay. the eponymous creditcardjs.com. And that's because that came out today, I believe, on yep. Hacker News, which, on Hacker will, News. which will be about two weeks from when we actually get this up. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and predictably, okay, so just to give you folks an idea of what it is, it's well-executed CSS, JavaScript, and HTML, which does the, static, the standard like static credit card form. But it does it well, such that you know you start typing in a credit card number with a four, it knows that it's a Visa, and it does error correction and does the LUN checking in real time without having to submit it to your servers. So this is like every credit card form you've ever coded in the last five years, except it's done well without you having to work on it for three hours. So it makes a very good self-contained product. I feel something yes. that can be built over the course of a couple of weeks, tuned to within an inch of its life, and then sold to people because it's. Uh, sitting in the critical path on taking money from every website ever, it's worth quite a bit of money relative to the amount of time, I feel, that it would take to uh, build and can be sold to many people in parallel. Right. And the if you haven't read the Hacker News commentary on it or forgot about it, uh, the community is pretty divided on it. And ironically enough, so are we. Um, See, I think it's a wonderful idea that's going to make this guy several tens of thousands of dollars. And Keith is like, oh, you could do that with open source in like a weekend. I... Yes, and I have to say, normally I am not on the side of open source will solve everything and I should be able to get it for free. Um, I am more on the side of paying for it if it saves me time. But this is especially apropos because I just launched my first SaaS product last Monday, this Monday, and which we'll be talking about in a little bit. And I actually had to build the credit card form for that. And so I am uniquely fit to say, okay, I know exactly how much time I spent on putting up my credit card. Now, that being said, the credit card JS right now is $150 during their beta and $250 um, after that. And it's one year of upgrades and unlimited use, mm-hmm. I believe, is what their licensing says. I think it's uh, for one-site licenses. So if you're right, something like okay. a development agency, you're going to have to, you know, if you have 15 clients, have 15 licenses. But I think... It's rounding error next to the amount of money that you typically put through a credit card form and also next to the amount of time it's typically spent in building them from scratch. I think I've probably been involved in 10 projects like that for uh, consulting clients. And um, conservatively, over those 10 projects, they have $100,000 invested yeah. in their credit card forms next to, you know, if I could just... Uh, take it off the shelf, drop it in, and say, all right, it's going to cost a total of 1.5K, and I'll get to the more valuable A-B tests rather than having to re-implement this from scratch every time. I would be doing that every right. time and all the time for consulting clients. And, and what we're talking about really is for a company or someone who does this all the time, maybe it is a better investment. I actually would say the opposite. If you are a consulting client, or if you're a consulting agent and you are doing this constantly, it would be better to have your own solution instead of paying 250 for each client you install this for. Um, now, if that's refundable to the client, that's something else um, if you're passing the billing on. But, okay, and the reason I say this is because, like I said, um, about a week and a half ago, I built the credit card um, processing on my site, and I needed essentially what this does. Uh, which And what it does is it makes a really pretty form, 
and it detects the card number, kind of like um, Apple site does, where you put in a 4-2, and it automatically says, oh, this is a Visa, 3-4, and says it's an American Express. Um, it formats it out nicely, so it's got the spacing right, the name on the card, the expiration date, the security code. It has a little HTML. Here's where you find your security code. If it's an Amex, here's, how you, here's where you find it. If it's a Visa, etc. It's very nice. Uh, coding it from scratch would be absolutely horrible. Um, if you were planning on coding it from scratch, I highly recommend not and buying this instead. Uh, the problem is I use Stripe, and Stripe has a lot of great open source solutions um, that don't need Stripe to be running on. And one of them is, I believe they call it jQuery.payment, or payment.jQuery, or something like that. Google it. Yeah, Google it. it. Stripe payments, it's really easy. But it has all the same functionality for the JS. It does not have the pretty form which I think is really the crux of this argument. That's kind of what I generally want to buy, considering pretty is not a strong suit for me. But I do tend to disagree. Stripe's jQuery payment thing, it's nice. I like it. I've integrated it myself. But I took it from, you know, I took my nice pretty form done by a designer and then ended up integrating the JavaScript myself. And it's, you know, an hour spent of hooking up JavaScript events to HTML divs and whatever with that funky dollar sign syntax and doesn't <laughs> make me any money. This is true. If it, and I think that's where it comes to. If you are a business, if you have... I, it, it's a hard balancing line because, especially, I'm, I'm bootstrapping, and I put mine together. It took me two hours to do to reproduce Credit Card JS on my site. Um, and an hour of that was finding jQuery payments because I had no... Or the Stripe payments processor because I had never heard of it before. So, this is one of these times where he's my best friend and I want to punch him in the face <laughs> because his charge-out rate is $500 an hour and he's arguing about $150 to save him two hours. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good learning experience for me. And, I, and that's another thing. If I was rushed, if I was very rushed, I, I'm not debating whether this is a good purchase or not. Really, I'm not. No face. Huh? Punch in the face. <laughs> uh... Okay, shall we move on to something else? Yeah, let's move on so to something else. For those of you who haven't already got credit cards up on your site, or if you feel that the user experience is not optimal and you want to try A-B testing something to see if it catches more transactions, take a look at Credit Card JS. I, you know, I will say that. I will say 100%. I will stand by that. Try out Credit Card JS. They have a 30-day... I would A-B test it. A-B test it against your current one, against Credit Card JS. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you see your sales dropping or you don't see improvements, tell them, hey, look, it didn't work. It didn't work as advertised. Okay, as one of the two resident A-B testing gurus, I can't say pop this in an A-B test, though, because how many transactions would you need to be running a month to get statistically significant data there? I have clients that could do it in a week. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have small clients. I have four people clients that could do it in a week. Yes, but they do run tens of thousands of transactions yes, a week, they do. right? Yeah. yeah. So if you've got tens of thousands of <laughs> transactions a week... Totally pop this in an A-B test. If you haven't quite gotten to the level of tens of thousands of transactions a week, just put your finger to the way and take a look at their like landing page and say, is this not as good as what I have currently? And if it's not as good, don't implement it. Um, I end up giving this advice to a lot of my A-B testing clients. Like, you know, early on in the funnel when you have high volumes and uh, relatively high conversion rates like to email submissions, for example, it's easy to justify the volume to do A-B testing. Um, but at a certain firm size, like even in the, say, 10 to $50 million year range, uh, A-B testing the credit card form can be kind of difficult just because we don't have the massive volume on transactions. Yeah, exactly. And then typically at my companies, they would be 
doing high-value transactions. So even at $10 million a year, that only that might be only 1,000 or 10,000 transactions, which won't get used to statistical significance in this, like, you know, emperor era age <laughs> reign thing. <laughs> what is the English word for that? Era? Century? Era? Things? Like, Heisei is what? It's what, 25 years right now? Well, yeah, I know that. But yeah, like, Heisei is an example of what? Like an uh, imperial reign? Imperial era. Imperial era, that's right. This right. is how we count years in Japan, by the way. You know, by what emperor is reigning during the uh, relevant period of time. Yeah. But yeah, you won't achieve statistical significance before we have a new emperor and every Japanese company has to update every payment form. That's going to be a lot of fun work. <laughs> oh, that's boy. a lot of chances for business. I swear, right. totally apropos of nothing, but dates, time zones, imperial reign things, Income all of it. Or um, sales tax. Sales tax. Um, all our of sales taxes. Just like burn... Burn them with fire. Why did we ever come up with this? <laughs> <laughs> oh. well, well, it's it's going to be interesting because, um, as you know, next year our sales rate, our sales tax goes from five percent to eight percent. Mm-hmm. So it's a um, increase of three points. And there's a Japanese law that all prices have to be written with sales tax included. And so every single sign in the country will have to be reprinted. And then. One year later, they're going to be raising it to 10%. And we'll need to rewrite every sign again. Yeah. Anyhow. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we said we weren't going to get in on that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, let's see. Launch. So, yeah, I was talking about... So, I've launched my first SaaS. Um, going well. Going well. It's Summit Evergreen. SummitEvergreen.com. Why don't you give people a little elevator pitch? Because I don't oh, think we've talked about it all pitch. that much on we have the not. podcast yet. We have not. It's... So, as you know, I do consulting for a lot of clients. Um, a lot of my clients are info product people. So, what is an info product? I know you hate... I can see you cringing right now behind your glasses. Burn that with fire. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what do you prefer as the name? Productized consulting, or even sometimes referring to the form factor, like an ebook or a video course or something, sounds better to me than info product. Because info, okay. info product... It just, like, pushes my internet marketing neuroreceptors, and those are not happy neuroreceptors. All right, so I, I hate the word ebook um, with Burning Passion, so let's do video course. Okay, a video right, course. Video course. All right, so Patrick actually put out a video course, his Lifecycle Emails course, which is amazing if you haven't checked it out. Um, I am completely unbiased in that opinion. Um, so I do a lot of client, I do a lot of consulting for clients who do video courses or just pure text courses, mainly video, and... One of the things that is difficult to do, especially with a video course, is provide value over a length of time, right? So you can say, here's my course, they get it all, and it's like, all right, I paid $500 for this, and it was done in a day, and now I don't know what I got for that $500. Like, I have tons of content, but I'm not led through it, right? So the idea is you, you take your content, you have your video course, and it's a real course, Right? It's like when you go to a community college, they don't just give you all the books and say, all right, we're done. No, it's this back and forth between the teacher, the content, and you. And it's doled out over time. Right? So that's the key. I think that's one of the key parts of a video course. And it's the same with your um, Lifecycle email course, is that it's doled out over time. It's not just, here's everything, go at it. It's, first we do this, and then let's build on that. Right. 
one of the problems with hitting people like critically hit with a wall of text or in my case dropping five hours video on someone in one day is that if you actually look at the analytics for who successfully watches it and then takes action upon it ultimately the goal for both parties is them taking action on it but as a gateway to um, taking action they need to actually watch the lesson and you know, a lot of people will watch the first hour and then less people will watch the second hour and then trails off and then the fifth hour maybe I think five to ten percent of the people who bought right. my course actually watched the fifth hour, and th which sort of unfortunate. Um, yeah, and another thing I've noticed when you have the entire course. So interestingly enough, I um, I got access to the lifecycle email course all at once um, because Patrick was nice enough to skip me forward. Um, but one of the issues with it is you tend to skip the things you think you already know. It's like, oh, I already know how to write a welcome email. I'm just going to skip that part. And that has a detrimental effect on both your, both the customer's um, feelings towards the course as well as their understanding of the course. And especially if you build off things that they may have skipped, then they're going to feel lost. And that's going to turn into churn. So we might need to define what churn means in, okay. this, uh, in this context. But just going back on uh, for a second on that one, as a teacher and someone who's done one of these products before, sometimes the... You know, a video which says on the tin that uh, it's hmm, teaches you something you think you already know might have uh, tactical implementation tips which have wildly disparate value that people don't always realize are there. For example, I had consulting clients who were already doing things like sending dunning emails, for example. A dunning email is just um, someone owes you money, their credit card failed or whatever, so they haven't paid you the money, so you have to get in touch with them and tell them that they owe you money and successfully collect payment for that. And I won't tell you the whole spiel now, but there's good ways to write dunning emails and bad ways to write dunning emails. And a lot of clients or a lot of companies that sell SaaS or some product that gets billed every month will send out a dunning email like, your credit card failed, please update. And that will be the entire text of the email. There's better ways to do it which get higher rates of audience compliance. And uh, if you get customers to comply with the instructions to pay you money, that's worth staggering amounts of money at scale. Yeah, exactly. And people might skip that video because dunning email, I've already implemented a dunning email, and honestly, how you know how hard is a dunning email? It only has to be two sentences long. Whereas, you know, I've had consulting clients where I was physically in the building able to direct them through re-implementing that and made them five or six figures with 30 minutes Should, of work on that email. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's unfortunate. So, sorry, back two steps. You said this helps decrease churn when you increase people's perception of value and get them to actually consume more of the content that was in the video course. Right. What do you mean by churn in that context? Okay, so... Oh, go ahead. Because I think a lot of people are coming from it from, wait, the business model is just a one-off sale. You don't have churn in a one-off sale. So that, that's the little dirty secret of video courses. I put in quotes as you know what I wanted to say. Uh, <laughs> any sales on the internet, really. Um, a one-time sale is not a one-time sale as long as that credit card is is being used. And the reason for that is, first of all, most video courses have a refund policy. Okay, So if people are not happy within that refund policy, so let's say it's 30 days, then they will refund. And that's what I mean by churn. It's a refund. You're losing money. You already gave out the course. They don't like it. They're refunding. Okay, So you say, oh, I just won't let them refund. Well, that, and that causes another big issue, which is that 
that's something you never, ever, ever want to do. Which is chargebacks. Yeah. Okay, so the credit card company, how many days is a chargeback valid for? 30 days? 180, Keith. 180, all right. For 180 days from the time when someone purchases your product, they can go to their credit card company and say, I didn't like this, or I want a refund, or hey, it wasn't me. Or an internet merchant did not live up to their claims on the website, yep. which you will almost invariably lose that chargeback. You will indeed. And the chargeback will not only take your money, but they will charge you a hefty fee on top of that for trying to take someone's money. Yep. I just um, had one of these for Bingo Card Creator. And they're annoying. It's a cost of doing business. I understand this happens once or twice a year for reasons that are only somewhat within my control. But it's like, okay... You get the $30 for the product back, and I just got assessed a $15 fee from the bank. And that's a guys. And the $15 fee is, is from Stripe, who is very nice about it. Right. Um, other processors will have up to $25 to $100. Yep. Because it's largely a manual process for chargebacks. They're not generally handled through APIs like Stripe is. Right. So, um, yeah, you want a refund policy, and you don't want to piss off your customers because they will hurt you more than, um, than it costs you to give them the free product. Okay, um, so that's that's what I mean by churn. You want people to be happy. You want people to find value from your product, not only because you want to help people, which you should be, but also because it will financially hurt you if you if they are not happy with it. Mm-hmm. And I should note that this uh, the kind of like base rate of refunds is wildly disparate based on what the audience for the product is. For example, in the B two B circumstance. Refunds are very rare, both for info products, sorry, (laughs) video courses, video courses, (laughs) SaaS, um, virtually anything you sell to businesses, the the refund rates are scandalously low. I think, um, let's say I had, what, on order of 250 sales of uh, my course and two refunds, one of which was they refunded so they could buy the more expensive version instead. Um, So net one refund. Whereas... um, in a lot of the, let's see, a baseline B2C rate for refunds. Uh, Bingo Card Creator has a fairly high refund rate because I'm very aggressive about offering customers refunds to solve customer service issues. And that's on the order of like 2.4% in most years. Um, higher this year due to a PayPal fraud ring. But um, yeah, video, um, course, video courses video have a cor- higher one. Yeah, especially as you get closer and closer into the dun 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 internet marketing space the refund rates approach like the double digits range where if you're getting close to that, something is wrong. Yeah. Um, I think refunds are like the dirty little secret. It's like no one ever thinks about that when they're creating their product, right? They're like, oh, I made a million dollars in sales this year. Well, 15% refunded. So that's 15% of your revenue gone, right? And so you really, you really have to care for your users. And, and going back to the topic at hand, that's what a dripped course does. Um, and a dripped course is a course that's doled out over time from the time when the person purchases. Now, um, this is a very common thing in video courses and whatnot. And the problem is that there's no real software that supports this right out of the box. Most people either build their own solution like Patrick did or... Um, Don't do that, by the way. It's really a pain in the ass, honestly. Um... The other thing is to do what do a launch and then drip it out manually, which is what they do when you use WordPress or whatnot. So essentially what happens is based on launch day, you say everyone's buying on this day, and then for the next week, at the beginning of the week, I'm going to launch the next piece of content. 
Well, the problem with this is you can only do that once, and then if you want to sell it again, you got to do that again. And so what people end up doing is they make an ebook because ebooks are very easy to evergreen. They're very easy to make once and sell to everyone. Um, this was an interesting conversation that I had uh, multiple times um, on Hacker News as well. How much do you consider an ebook to be worth? I think that varies wildly depending on what's in the ebook, but let's say hypothetically that the ebook is being sold to businesses and has something that will eventually increase their revenue yeah. or reduce their costs. Let's, let's talk the highest cost of an ebook could probably get you for a business as just like a downloadable PDF. Okay, as a downloadable PDF. I think you could definitely do things like Nathan Berry-esque to make higher plans in the ebook that would cost more. But, but he, he puts things together with right. the ebook, right? Just, right, right. We're talking so, just the ebook. So just a flat downloadable PDF, I'm thinking somewhere in like the $49 to $99 right. range probably. Exactly. So how much um, how much is your lifecycle email course? Uh, $499, $97 or something. All right. Yeah. If you gave that as a... 500 Yeah. Do you think you could have sold that as, a, as an ebook? $500? I think it would have been very difficult to convince <laughs> people that it was worth $500 as an ebook. Yeah, so I, I've actually, I do this with my consulting clients as well because many of them do the ebooks, right? Because it's very easy to evergreen. They don't, they launch once and they, forever more, they can always say, go to my site, my shopping cart page, buy the ebook, and then you'll have it. And they're like, yeah, and that's worth $50, $60. And it, the problem is that's worth $50, $60. That's great. But you're not going to sell a $2,000 or $3,000 or even a $500 um, ebook like that. And so you can take similar content, add video, add downloads, add all these extra things in there to and drip it out over time to make it more valuable. And that, and that's what the course does. The course, let or what my um, system does, Summit Evergreen, lets you do is take your video course, take your audio course, take your written course, take your downloads, take your feedback, and drip it out over time in an evergreen fashion. So based on whenever the person purchases, then they run through the whole course, just like the um, course that Patrick wrote uh, from scratch. And how many months did that take you? If I you think, don't mind me asking. I think it was probably, I want to say two weeks, but that's like an engineer's two weeks, so yeah. probably really four weeks. Four weeks, yeah. yeah. As, a, as a very good engineer yeah. with a framework, and yeah. yeah. Probably... Um, and you had done and you had done processing with Stripe before, so mm -hmm. you knew how to hook up the. Um, you reused a lot of code from other places, I think. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Copy pasted in the entire user model from Bingo Card Creator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're we're really talking. I mean, if you have all the modules, everything great, very easy to set up. Um, four weeks of engineering time. Yeah, like it's easily in the five figures of engineering time. Yeah. So yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a large is, project, and that's often a like cash cost for a lot of these customers because the people who do uh, training on the internet do not necessarily have um, Ruby on Rails developers just flowing out of their ears, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, like when Keith's clients come to Keith, they pay Keith cash money to set up systems like that. Yeah, and so that's one of the things that we've been doing. We looked at the ways that people have marketed their video courses, ways that people need to look at their video courses, and not only the data. So um, Patrick, you say you only have 250 um, customers. I, I say only, not with any derision, but with love. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I have some clients that have 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 users running through theirs. What do you have for user analytics? Like, do you have anything like... Nothing. Okay, exactly. So, and this is... You are not alone in this. This is another one of those dirty little secrets like refunds. It's... 
so once people buy the course, are they using it? Even if they don't run refund, did they use it? What do they like? What do they not like? Mm -hmm. What should I do for my next course? Right. So I did an ad hoc. Uh, I've done ad hoc surveys of my customers after they bought it. I've talked to them individually, and there is a page I can go to in Wistia that will show like who watched well not who watched, but um, what number of people watched you know video X. And then if I do the math there, I can figure okay. Uh, X over 250 equals, all right, 25% of people watch this video, and only 10% of people watch this video, so question mark, question mark, question mark. I suppose that might tell me something, but I never spent any time or built any uh, analytic software to help me do that in a more systemized manner. Right. And I, I think that's really important because you can learn a lot from not only are people watching it, but who's watching it. Um, we've done dives into our analytics, and this is one of the, the basis of what the software we built where, okay, let's look at people who are refunding. And we found out 70% of people who listed their occupation as education refunded. So now now we, now we have a... Um, further proving that teachers are terrible, <laughs> terrible <laughs> yeah, if, if only we had created some bingo cards or something for um, middle-aged um, teachers If there is the anyone on this, on this podcast who does not yet understand it, do not go after the education market, please. Save yourself a lot of time and pain. <laughs> Anyhow. But, but what I was saying with that was that now we have a flag, but now that customer has a flag, that client has a flag to know when an educational customer gets within that refund period at about that three week that they should send extra support emails. They have a little flag that says, send an extra support email that says, hey, is there anything we can help you with? And that helps a lot. That helps reducing refunds a ton. I really love this kind of like mid-touch idea where it's not high-touch like an inter enterprise sales process where your first um, contact with the company is, okay, I'm going to give the sales guy my phone number and he's going to call me, invite me out to a steak dinner, and then attempt me to sell me out a $750,000 solution. And it's not low-touch like bingo card creator where my idealized interaction with the customer is never talking to them at all. They just deal with the website and email, pay me twenty five ninety five, and I never even learn their name. It's something in the middle where customers who are sufficiently, sufficiently engaged with the product or they're savvy enough or whatever the combination of uh, things is, they can get all the value out of the product without needing to touch, uh, talk to you. That's fine. They can do it. And then customers who might need a little bit of prodding or hand-holding can be offered that prodding or hand-holding, but at scale in such a manner that it doesn't require say, tying up the, um, basically one-to-one -one use of the company's right. time and the customer's time. So, so this this was a key word that um, we brought up a lot. So um, I'm, I'm going to skip ahead one, then we'll come back to one. Um, sure, so please. Patrick and I went to MicroConf Prague, or MicroConf Europe in Prague, uh, what, three weeks ago? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and what, what was one of the key words there that we kept saying? Concierge onboarding. Concierge onboarding. Con Okay, concierge is probably the most important word that I've learned or has come into fashion in the last year or so for um, basically selling software on the internet. Um, you mind if I take concierge for a little bit? Okay, so back in the olden days when it was just high-touch sales and um, you know enterprises selling things to other enterprises for $100,000 and there was a sales guy involved and steak dinners and fancy bottles of wine you know, preceded invoices. There was a thing called professional services. And professional service was basically consulting that you had to use to get the software to be in some state of functionality. But the 
the company was very rarely interested in consulting as a profit center. It was just, you know, you would sell someone $20,000 of consulting to enable an $80,000 license sale of the software. Concierge onboarding is taking the core of that idea and applying it to the SaaS model, where instead of you know, $100,000 licenses, it's $50 to $500 per month. And what concierge onboarding is, is let's say, you know, rather than someone coming to your website, they say, okay, I want the small business plan. It costs $80 a month. Click, click, click. I interact with your uh, automated onboarding process. Click, click, click. I interact with your totally onboarded, uh, automated onboarding email sequence. Click, 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 click. Never talk to anybody. Okay, it's 30 days later, and I pay my $80 on my credit card. You get if in touch with the person. Yeah, if, if you're lucky. 25% of them, if you're very, very good at it, you pay the $80 on the credit card. You affirmatively get in touch with someone who is either a prospect for your service or they're a lead, a trial, they just signed up for the service, whatever. And you say, hey, you know, there's some configuration or data import or learning curve associated with getting up and running on this. We want to grease the grease the skids, grease, grease the, the wheels. Grease the wheels of that onboarding process for you. So for example, let's say it's an analytics product, you're going to have to copy paste some JavaScript in your website. You might not be technical, and that might be difficult for you. Tell you what, I will log into your website and do the copy-pasting for you. You just tell me your uh, FTP username and password, and we'll get it done. Or, in my case, um, appointment reminder often requires importing somebody's contacts database into the appointment reminder system. And there actually isn't a, you know, system that takes, like, an arbitrary data dump from any arbitrary patient or contact management system, converts it into an Excel file, and allows you to select arbitrary columns from that Excel file to import into the appointment reminder database. So I just tell people, look, get me any data file in any format you can come up with. Send it to me via email. I will figure out how to parse it and import it into the system for you. On the assumption, which has been proven out in data, by the way, that, okay, if someone comes in the door and says, I want a $200 account, 25% of them are going to actually convert into paying $200 a month, and that's happy. But 75% of them who have their data imported into the system will actually convert into paying $200 a month. So that adds literally thousands of dollars of lifetime value to move someone from the 25% chance of conversion into the 75% chance of conversion bucket. And, and since there's a, not that many people doing the concierge right now, um, once you have your data somewhere, it's very hard to move out. Right. Right? So, I, you don't even need to use any, like, Microsoft nastiness of making it difficult to get pe people's data out of the system. You can just, like, let friction work. So Right. You can, you can um, export all of your Google data, all your Facebook data, to a nice, easy-to-understand XML document. Oh, yeah. And then what the F are you going to do with that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, if anybody ever wanted to leave the appointment reminder platform, I would be so happy to export them an Excel file of all the data that they have in the system. But since nobody's going to import that for them for free, that's not really a competitor risk for me. Right, exactly. And the people who are going to import that for free are people who are directly your competitors. Right. Um, or to to phrase it the other way, like if someone gets their data from a you know one of the competing appointment reminder platforms or one of the complementary patient management platforms, I will be happy to you know walk over any sort of engineering issue to get that data into my system just to um, make it easy for them to get up and running. Exactly, exactly. Remember, your competition is not just your competition, you're their competition. So the better service you can get in getting their data into your system, the better you are.
Anyhow, I feel like we're kind of rat holing on that like yeah. data import thing. Sorry. But yeah, yeah. so uh, concierge onboarding. I've seen companies that have successfully implemented it across their entire range of accounts. But one thing you can do just to get a baseline for how much that's going to cost you in terms of founder time or customer support team time or customer success advocate time or whatever you want to call that person is to offer for a week to a small selection of people who are on the higher value plans. Hey, um, we saw you signed up for the higher value plan. Don't actually call it that. Uh, you know, <laughs> thanks for signing off, uh, signing up for the office plan of the software. As a special benefit to you, I'd like to make it as easy as possible for you to get up and running. Why don't we you know, spend an hour on Skype to walk you through it? And that's what Brendan Dunn, Dunn does. Or why don't... Um, you know, can I help you with the uh, with the data import? Just send me the stuff. I'll take care of it. Right. So you do that five times, ten times. Figure out your average cost of doing it is, and then run numbers. Okay, what percent increase in conversion or percent decrease in churn rate do you need to justify doing that for all the customers on the higher tier plans? And then you can offer it as an explicit benefit on the pricing page. So let's say you know appointment reminder is priced based on how many appointments you use per month. And that's the primary axis of segmentation between customer types. But you've got to figure that some of the doctors who are on the $29 a month plan would be happy to pay more money if it was less painful for them to use. And importing things manually by retyping is painful. Mm -hmm. So I might say, okay, if you're on a plan at least one level higher, like the $79 plan, we'll take care of that importing stuff for you. And the doctor might say, well, I only run enough appointments a month to do the $29 plan. But I'll bump up to the $79 plan and not have to have my office manager like lose her fingers doing the data retype step. Exactly. And that gets you know, $50 a month times average customer lifetime of two years plus. That's an extra $1,000 in my pocket just for offering what is, from my perspective, uh, perhaps 15 to 20 minutes of scripting. Right. And same with um, Summit Evergreen. We're concierge onboarding everyone, especially in the first, um, in the first trial right now. Um, because everyone, most of the people who are starting off at this, not only do they have an idea, they already have a product somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. They have it on WordPress. They have it on, um, who else is really big right now? They write their own systems, etc. And I have a lot of people who have their all their data in GitHub and Markdown, and they process it themselves. And we'll say, hey, we'll take your data. We import it into the database. You have a theme. We'll help you convert your theme and import it into the system. And you're up and running in a couple of days. And once you're up and running, it's so much easier to stay in that system. It's so much easier to get what you want to do done instead of spending all your time, like you say, wearing your fingers down to the bone, reproducing what you already have. Right. And this is something that's really important for basically any system where you're trying to convince someone from moving off a working system they already have. Um, eventually, I think Keith will be um, moving into building this sort of system or selling this sort of system to people who it's their first rodeo on yeah. the products on the internet thing. But people who, in general, for selling business tool tools, the people who are easiest to convince to start using something and who have the highest budgets for it are not people who it's their first rodeo. They already have a working system. It has some sort of disadvantage associated with it. You convince them to move to your system and then start charging them money for it and learning what your system needs to do to uh, grow into the other underserved segments of the audience. Correct. So... Great example of that. Uh, Rob Walling recently launched Drip, which is a um, lifecycle email yeah. slash uh, drip marketing management tool. And um, you know, I've been building drip marketing systems for years. Many of my clients would be on something like Mailchimp, which um, 
there's pluses and minuses for using MailChimp for drip marketing. We'll just leave that out there. But um, if you go to a JRandom client and say, hey, you should switch to this new guy's system, all of them are going to tell you, well, we have something that kind of works right now. We might have a bit of dissatisfaction with it, but it cost us $10,000 to get that up and running the first time, and honestly, nobody here has enough time to spend a week you know, um, rewriting it for your tool. So what Rob Walling will do is say, look, if you point us at a blog post, like a series of blog posts or an existing email campaign, we will screen scrape with our eyeballs everything out of that, get it up and running in our system, and then all you have to do is turn the key on your site, you know, get the like, retarget your form from like submit to Mailchimp to submit to the drip thing, and then boom, you're live on us. No work required on your part, hardly. Then the inertia works in his factor rather in his favor rather than working against him. That oh well, I'm up and running on drip now. Why would I ever use anything else? Right. And pains of changing are really things you cannot discount. Once someone's on something, the inertia to stay on that system is very strong. And if even if you have overcome that inertia to, okay, we're going to switch to the new system, and there's a bump in the road, then the whole thing can come crumbling down. So what we did, we're, we're actually on MailChimp right now. Love MailChimp. Um, but we have more experience with Aweber. So we're like, okay, we're going to move our XXX number of people from MailChimp over into Aweber. And they have a nice import feature. And we decided, okay, before we move everyone over, we're going to test this once. And good thing we did, because it will send a confirm email to every single person on that list that has already opted in. So they have to reconfirm their email address to get into Aweber. We were all ready. We bought the account. We had everything. And at that point, we were like, okay, um, this is a bump. We could probably call support and deal with it, but... MailChimp is good, they've treated us well, and we'll just stay with that. Mm -hmm. That's not just a bump, by the way. That's, it's a pretty big bump. <laughs> so, I, I have an idea of what client he's talking about. Oh, no, that was just, me. That was me. That was you? That was Summit Evergreen, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Um, figure if you ask for a reconfirmation, unless your list is incredibly, like, hanging on your every word, you're probably going to lose between 60 and 80% of them. Oh god, that's a, that's a that's a low ball. That's a low ball. I'd say. I think I would lose sixty percent of my list if I asked them to reconfirm their email addresses today. Given that about fifty percent of them open every email, and I, you know, might get eighty percent compliance on the yes, I want to continue getting email from you. So, and um, not to brag, but I think uh, I have higher than the average emailer on their internet mm -hmm. uh, kind of loyalty for my list. But on the other hand, it's not just loyalty. Okay, so you've already been on a list. And it's kind of going rapid, but I, I just want to say this real quick. Yeah. You've been on a list, and they send you a reconfirm. Well, first of all, you think maybe this is spam. Maybe you just, maybe you just trash it. Maybe you don't open it. Maybe you email Patrick and says, hey, I got a reconfirm, which I've gotten before. I've had people email me that have been um, moved over to a new list and said, hey, I'm already confirmed, but I'm getting a reconfirm. Apparently, someone's trying to spam me mm -hmm. from your address. So right. you just created so many support handles and support issues. You might get, um, you know, it's possible that someone has affirmatively moved your email from uh, Google's new promotions tab into their main inbox because they want to see it every time, but the reconfirm notice goes into the uh, promotions tab and they don't see that and suddenly they don't get email anymore. There's just lots and lots of issues. Um, that's one of the reasons why email marketing tends towards stasis. Yeah. Uh, you don't want, after you have a system that's working, you don't want to nudge it. Right. Sort of like doing um, 
DevOps, right? Like, oh, God, yes. If you've, if you've ever gotten, you know, a particular version of Ubuntu running on your server, never upgrade it, ever. There's, there's a reason that I still have sites running on Slicehost Generation 1 servers now owned by Rackspace. Yeah. Well, absent like a, um, what do you call it? Okay, so obviously you have to update your kernel every once in a while or there's going to be security vulnerabilities, and I understand that. I just know the last time I did a kernel update on Rackspace, I had six and a half hours of downtime. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Anyhow. Um, All right, so I think that's uh, that's good about um, concierge uh, service things. So, yeah, so that's concierge stuff. So concierge is a tactic Keith is using for Summit Evergreen. Um, let's talk a little bit more about that topic because there's some interesting things that uh, people who are doing their first SaaS business might uh, benefit from. All right. Um, so customer development is kind of a catchword in the in the industry. I, I like Keith's uh, thing here for doing customer development because basically the Summer Evergreen is an extraction out of his wildly successful consulting practice. So it's not like the typical thing where, okay, I think I'm going to make um, schedule management for massage therapists and... I have not ever run a massage therapist uh, therapy business or whatnot, so I don't know if there's a market for that yet. So in customer development, hopefully you would go out to the massage therapist and, act, and ask, what do you use for schedule management? Do you have a burning schedule management problem in your business prior to building the solution and attempting to sell it to them, or else you're going to find that you make a solution that targets a problem that nobody has. Keith knows that people who have businesses that sell meaningful amounts of money on these um, online courses have problems with online course management because they paid him previously meaningful amounts of money, like meaningful amounts of money in a consulting sense rather than a 50 to $200 a month sense to solve these problems. Right. So, you know, are you comfortable saying what like an average invoice is for somebody, one of the clients doing this? I am unfortunately not. Okay. Um, so, so let me pick a number out of thin air, thin air for my like consulting experience, just as a you know ballpark number for having a high-level consultant work for your business. Let's say it's $40,000 a project. So if you have a successful consulting practice and you've been selling some certain segment of business $40,000 services to get that aspect of their business better, then you know there must be someone who has at least enough of a burning desire to fix that problem such that they're willing to um, pay for a software as a service offering if that software as a service offering is some percentage of as good as having your expertise right. in the business for one week or two weeks or however you schedule your typical consulting engagement. Right. And so it's highly unlikely that Keith is going to go to the market now with Summit Evergreen, which is priced at whatever. Uh, starting at 99 yeah. Starting at 99 And what's your pricing model for this? That's uh, 99250 and $500, I believe. And what's the pricing access for that? How do you mean? What what is what is the main number? So, so what determines whether I pay ninety nine or pay five hundred dollars? Aside from like the names of the plans, which it's name, all naming the names plans of, really really important. It's all the names of the plan. There's no different. No, I'm kidding. I've obviously <laughs> seen companies like that. No lie, guys. Like seriously, just putting the name enterprise on something makes it more valuable than having the name hobbyist. Can I tell my the anecdote yeah, I always please, tell about please. this? When I was working at a Japanese company, we needed to use Crazy Egg for something. You know, Crazy Egg, the thing that shows you where you're clicking on the website or where your customers are clicking on the website. I was the engineer in charge of this project. I ran the numbers. We needed the hobbyist plan of Crazy Egg for $9 a month. I submitted a expense report or expense authorization form or whatever to my boss. 
saying we need the hobbyist version of Crazy Egg. It's $9 a month, which is whatever, 1,000 yen. My boss opens up the Crazy Egg pricing page, scratches out hobbyist, writes enterprise, scratches out $9, writes $500, or whatever the equivalent in yen is, and returns the form to me for reauthorization so he can send it to his boss. I said, boss, boss, we don't need to spend $500 a month. We only need to spend nine. I've run the numbers. I'm very sure that we'll have plenty of headroom under that. And he says, well, if I'm going to show it to my superior with the word hobbyist on it. So it was worth $500, well, $490 extra a month just to save face for an interaction between two people at this company, which would have been over in like less than five seconds. Right. And this is one of the um, the core marketing concepts that surprisingly a, not, a lot of people doing video courses do not get, which is tiered pricing. Mm-hmm. SaaS companies don't get this either, by the it's, way. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But at any pricing point, there is someone who will and will not pay it based on that. Um, mm-hmm. the, the idea is that you have a price point for whatever someone is willing to pay. If they're only willing to pay $100, you have a $100 plan. This, of course, you don't want to have a $5 plan. But um, but if someone is willing to pay $500 to $1,000, you better have a plan for them. Otherwise, they're going to be on that $50 plan, and you're going to be out $900. Right. So the... In the economics literature, there's like words for this kind of stuff that we're just uh, uh, beating around the bush here. Um, one of them is, so customer surplus is the difference between what someone is willing to pay and what you actually make them pay. So let's say, you know, in my business, the value of adopting this technology would be $1,000. So I'm willing to pay up to $1,000 to adopt that. Or let's say it's $2,000, I have a 50% discount rate, yada, yada. I'm willing to pay up to $1,000. You charge me 50 that means I just received $950 of customer surplus from you. To act to capture the customer surplus is called, not segmentation, price discrimination. discrimination. And price discrimination in the classical market is sort of difficult because you have to offer just the, uh, this isn't a legal requirement or anything, but just operationally, it's difficult to offer people the same product at different prices in such a way that you can maximally discriminate on their propensity to pay. SaaS does that by doing the nice traditional three to five column SaaS pricing tier thing and thinking really, really carefully about what's in those three to five columns. Well, knock on wood, aspirationally, you think really, really carefully. The actual practice of a lot of SaaS companies is it's what a junior engineer threw up three years ago and no one has touched. Which is really sad. Yeah. Um, On the plus side, if you ever work in a SaaS company, just take a look at that pricing page and do like one, one to two days of like really deep thinking who, every element on that page, like whose perception of the of the pricing offering is it supposed to modify, and how? Make a new version and test it, and you can often like add twenty five percent plus to like the enterprise value of the right. company for two days of work. Uh, in PTW, there's a lot of people who charge a lot of money for pricing advice just because yeah, the leverage on it is absolutely freaking astounding. Anyway, right. I mean, if you improve if you improve if you improve someone's pricing page and they improve their end-of-year sales, I mean, that's worth however much money they made that year because they'll make it again next year Mm -hmm. and the year after that. And, yeah. Yeah, it's not just to the bottom line. It's to the, you know, the leverage doesn't extend to the bottom line, just the bottom line. It's to the enterprise value of the company. It's absolutely insane. Which is why, actually, our tiers, you asked what our access is. Our main access is the number of customers you have. Mm -hmm. Um, And since it's evergreen, it's not the overall number of customers, it's customers per month. So if you made, if you got 200 new customers this month, 
then you're in, then you will probably want to buy this tier. If you're expecting 500 new um, customers a month, you'll want this tier, etc., etc. This is one of the good patterns for both SaaS pricing and uh, info product draw pricing. <laughs> video courses. Yeah, video course pricing is to align the price with uh, customer success. Yes. So, you know, the it's uh, one of the reasons people like micrometering models, which I, I generally hate micrometering models for pricing most kinds of things unless it's uh, unless it's basically a purely transactional thing like PayPal or Stripe or whatever mm-hmm. where you're getting a percentage of every transaction. But um, the one good thing that you can say about those is that they scale pretty directly with customer success. So if someone sells $100,000 of stuff through Stripe, they pay $3,000 or whatever in Stripe fees. If they sell a million dollars, it goes up to 30000 So, you know... Um, uh, Stripe captures some percentage of the upside as their business grows and gets more successful based on the Stripe platform. Sometimes, SaaS are priced in a way that does not align them, necessarily align them with customer success. That's often unfortunate. I have an example. I don't know if they would appreciate me telling the name of it, but there's a company I was involved with, and uh, they sell to developers, and their one of their pricing axes was how many repositories we have. And... Repository, like the count of repositories in your organization is a very imperfect proxy for your business success. Uh, it's a great line one day. Um, I don't know if this is actually true, but like the word on the street is that Google has exactly one repository stored, stored in like per force or something. But one repository across an organization that makes like $100 billion a year. <laughs> and there's a lot of, you know, like two-man Ruby on Rails consultancies that have 100 repositories just because Ruby on Rails and the Git model right. kind of encourages you to have a repository for, for every little thing you thing. do. Yeah. So if you're thinking of charging, you know, JRandom two-person Ruby on Rails consultancy orders of magnitude more than you would charge at Google for a product with approximately the same value proposition, your pricing may need a little bit of a tweak. Right. And um, this is one of the um, advantages, I think, that... Bitbucket has over GitHub because GitHub for their private repositories does what you're saying. I don't think you're referring. I'm almost positive you're not referring to GitHub in that. Yeah, but no. um, but they do do that. Uh, and they're really, I mean they're competitive pricing. I mean it's five, You get five um, re- private repos for I think like five dollars or something like that. it's nothing. But like you said, I have fifty repos sitting around, and I want them private because either they're client stuff or they're small things. Or I hope that's a yawn and not you. have Viewing me in disgust. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but um, and that's one of the things I like about Bitbucket. Bitbucket's pricing model for private repos is not on the number of repos; it's the number of contributors you have to that repo. Which, if you are doing a project where it's just you, then yeah, it's just free storage. But if you have, if you're doing any business and you have more than five to ten people in a repo, then they're going to charge you for it, right? I really like scaling on team size because team size is, again, it's an imperfect approximation for the value received from a um, for the value received from a given product. But it's a really good approximation of ability to pay. Yes. Simply because somebody who has ten employees of the company, no matter what their job title is, no matter what their salary is, if they have ten employees, then the company must be spending at least twenty thousand dollars a month on something. Yeah. Therefore, kicking your price up from fifty dollars to two hundred fifty dollars doesn't, like, no needle at the company changes as a result of that. But when you 5X your prices, a needle very much makes a move, like, a difference at your company. So I don't even think it's on our pricing page, but uh, if you try to, 
um, appointment reminder will, you know, kick you in from the $29 bucket to the $200 bucket pretty much automatically if you go above. Uh, I don't know what the number is off the top of my head, but it's like three employees or five employees or whatnot. Yeah. And I've never had a single complaint about that. And Atlassian is great because that's their whole marketing for their on-demand service and their normal service is they have the 10 for 10. $10 a month for any product up to 10 users. And it's great for small companies. Um, I, I have about 10, exactly 10 people actually working with me. And we have 10 people. I ha Of course, I have six or seven of their products now, so I'm not paying $10, unfortunately. But um, as my business grows, as I pay, as I get more people in my business, and I have the money to pay their salary, of course I'm going to move to the next level in Atlassian. Because first of all, they've been really good to me up until now. Second of all, all my data for the last five years is in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to move to... Um, to Redmine or whatnot after and move five years of customer data and everything into that new system. And it's funny because I assume that Atlassian probably has an export feature. And oh, yes, they do. Yeah, they don't Very try good. to um, you know, lock you in or anything. It's just like the nature of all businesses, like we were talking earlier. After you have a working system, the impetus is in favor of working at things that actually matter in the business and not twiddling around with... Um, you know, trying to move to a different uh, software solution and save what is, from the business's perspective, a minuscule amount of money. Right. The pain point has to be very high before you are willing to um, to switch over. And actually, I did just switch over one of my systems, which we'll talk about in a bit if we have time. Yeah. By the way, um, for those of you who are thinking of doing a SaaS right now, so if you're going to follow your advice and target a SaaS that is targeted to a businesses or launch a SaaS that is targeted to businesses, that last bit we just said about there are huge switching costs involved in doing anything, so if there isn't a lot of pain, you won't do the switch, should inform your idea of what you should make for a SaaS. So if you are talking to potential customers and the idea, the pain point that you're going to target is not one of like the top two most pressing issues in their life right now, don't do that. Do one of the top two things. Yes, as a business, you know, I'm a very busy guy. I have run four products. I have uh, thousands of customers uh, and, and off again employees. Things are going on. And I have way, way, way too little time to deal with it all. And so if you're not on my like top two issue list, I'm not going to buy your thing. No matter, you know, I could tell you, oh, that's nice. It sounds like a great idea. The UI is beautiful. I love it. I might even implement it someday when I get a moment. But the truth is, like, I never get a moment. I very rarely have time to, you know, get things that are lower on the priority stack than the top two things. So, if you were trying to sell to me or to the generalized class of small business owners who I kind of represent, sell solutions to the top two problems. Right, exactly. I wonder what my top two problems are. I can tell you right off the top of my head what mine are. Billing and product management. Mine are probably hmm, getting more customers in a scalable manner. For point reminder... Getting more customers in a scale. <laughs> Seriously, like, and so, someone out there will eventually uh, crack the Da Vinci code of getting scalable customer acquisition for SaaS businesses, and that person is going to be a billionaire. So th this is another thing. So you say you're, you're top two. So let's say you're top two. Okay, let, let's take me, for example, with my billing and project management. And top two pain points, those are my top two. However, if someone had a SaaS that's like, scalably um, increase your business then that would be number one mm -hmm. right there. Because 
Yes, to the magic money wand. Please wave the magic money wand for me. Exactly. If there is something that I can pay money to, and the return on actual money is greater than the amount of money I am paying, then it's a no-brainer. Um, I think we had this conversation one time. Maybe it was just you and me. We were talking about the price of accountants, and um, mm-hmm. there was a very expensive accountant that we were talking about, and it saved someone a very large amount of money about. 20k. Let's just throw out a number. I'll put actual numbers. Okay. Put, okay. Yeah. All right. I thought I owed the IRS fourteen thousand dollars. My accountant, who charged me five thousand dollars to do my taxes for the year, which is on the high side for accountants, um, was able to reduce that fourteen thousand dollar bill to I kid you not eleven bucks. Yeah, um, and just because he had comprehensive knowledge of the U.S. Japan um, Social Security Totalization Agreement and the U.S. Japan Technical Implementation Notes for the U.S. Japan um, Tax Treaty. And apparently you were also paying for the la- overpaying for the last three years as well. Yep. You probably so, could get me that much money back too. And so I just haven't he- done that yet. And after hearing this story, um, I, I have I have a slightly expensive account. Not that expensive. Um, pe- but people in Japan who are, especially in this area, who are very thrifty, um, would keep saying, why are you paying that much for an account? I'm like, because he makes me more than I am paying. He saves me more money on my taxes than I am paying him. Therefore, I am happy. Right. And a huge amount of stress at the same time. Oh, God. <laughs> it had to do taxes, and those of you who've done taxes know that it's like pulling teeth, and it gets harder every year for me because my business gets increasingly complex. And B, there was like the stress of knowing, okay, there's some way to optimize this, but I'm not sure what it is. And every minute that I spend optimize my ta- optimizing my taxes is a minute that I don't spend optimizing, dun-dun-dun, increasing the number of accounts on appointment reminder. Right. Which, you know... Rationally, that should be the only thing I work on, aside from all the other things that I have to work on. So to to pull back real quick, um, the number one thing you should be focusing on is things that make people money. Yeah, that's the number one thing that people will buy. If your service can make someone money, they will buy it. The number two one is hitting those top two pain points. What are the things that people hate doing in their business or in their personal life I, I say business because B2B prints money, B2C is really effing hard. Um, what are the two pain points that you can solve easily and push for that? Yeah. Not to beat on the anti-B2C drum again, but to beat on the anti-B2C drum again. <laughs> with the amount of money flowing around in like the venture capital world right now, and also the likes of uh, Facebook, Apple, Google, etc., who are basically driving the price of software down to zero because it's complementary good for their various ecosystems that allow them to print money, I don't think there's really great opportunities for small businesses to do quite so well in B2C software anymore. Like, there was a thriving uh, Mac market of, you know, $30 softwares Mm -hmm. um, a couple of years ago, back back in the post-shareware days, and now even though the market is probably expanding due to the presence of app stores and whatnot, Mm -hmm. um, Apple's basically like designed the mechanics of the app stores to encourage churn and encourage like the pricing to go to zero. Right. Because you, you that have to the sell happiest quantity. like the happiest outcome of the world for Apple is there's an app for everything and none of them cost more than ninety nine cents and that will l- allow us to sell a lot of our six hundred dollar iPhones. Exactly. So they just released pages, numbers, and whatever the other one is, uh, word. Not Word. I wish it was Word. No, that's Pages. I don't know. They Keynote. Keynote for free. The latest version of Mac OS X or is free. 
uh, Windows is now $5 or something like that. I don't know if that was a limited time or not, but I think the upgrade to um, to Windows 8 was $5, if I remember correctly. Yeah, this is... Was this in one of Joel Spolsky's strategy letters where he's like, commoditize your compliments? Yeah. This is totally coming true in the software business. Like, the big platform companies have decided, okay, software is now a complementary good to the service that we offer. With Facebook, it's the social graph. With Google, it's controlling navigation on the internet slash advertising. With uh, Apple, it's the hardware. And they want to make the software experience, like, people say, oh, yeah, we have, a, we have a developer community. We want them to build wonderful businesses on our platform, but they want you to build wonderful businesses while, like, pinching your margins to the absolute bone. Right. Right. And similarly, while your margins are getting pinched to the absolute bone, you're going to be competing with people who are venture-funded based on, like, the huge size and growth opportunities on these platforms who are capable of, like, having negative margins just because they have mad money behind them. Right. When you're, when like, you're there was that... Um, uh, there was a photo-sharing startup that um, recently got Everpix. shuttered. Everpix, yeah. yeah. And so um, Everpix, they spent $2 million to make $100,000. And so many parts of that story make me kind of sad. One is that, um, by all accounts, their service was actually like really useful and people loved it. But um, it would have been you know, an awesomely successful business making like, $30,000 a month or whatever um, if it was a solo founder who had built it up as a labor of love by himself and then was getting to a point of significant success yeah. where at $30,000, you've covered the day job, you have a legitimate business, you can start like reinvesting into it by you know, hiring people one person at a time and then slowly ramping up. Um, but due to kind of like the throw gas on the Barbie venture capital model, they had seven full-time employees and payroll costs on the order of like $2 million over a two-year period. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, it's very hard to to make the math of, like, I'll pay my employees $2 million and take in $200,000 of revenue uh, work out over time. And they didn't have the hockey stick, stick growth curve that would uh, convince the VCs to, like, stake them with another $4 million in the hopes that they eventually got to 100 times where they were. Right. So Now, I, I do want to put some numbers in perspective. So $2 million for seven people sounds like a ton of money. Over two years, it's still one hundred forty k. It's not definitely not anything close to bootstrapping, but it is not. It's not like they were blowing money on their right. employees. Yeah, um, they were probably taking below market uh, costs in San Francisco, and there's a breakdown of their numbers that we'll uh, link to in the show notes. But um, their payroll costs were so much. Like if you compare their total payroll cost number to their total salary number, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that they were not getting like the standard quote-unquote, standard benefits package you would expect as a uh, white-collar worker. So In the, the San Francisco area? Right. right. So they're getting, they're getting below-market salaries, and, you know, presumably any one of the employees of that company could have worked at, without loss of generality, like Google or Facebook, and gotten the famous free food and free massages and, oh, yeah, uh, paid health care for you and your family, all those right. other things that um, you typically get if you're working as an engineer. So it's right. not that they were... It's not that they were setting money on fire for salaries. It's just that... Um, Venture capital allowed them to grow the team heavily in advance of where the business was, and then that gamble did not quite work out. Right, exactly. Which leaves, um, you know, burns $2 million of venture capital guy's money. I'm not really concerned about that, because you pay your money and you take your chances when you're a accredited investor. Um, but when you're but, bootstrapped, um, especially like us, 
Right. I, I, don't, ha- I don't have seven million to burn. Right. <laughs> or being, and um, getting back to the point of where you guys as small businesses might be if you have a venture capital venture capital funded competitor in the market, like let's say you were in the Everpick space, um, today might be happy for you actually because you have the option to go swoop in and rescue 30,000 customers from, hey, your service is getting turned off, maybe you should use us instead. But, um, you know, the two years prior to this, it's like, well, there's this beautiful, well-designed app which has uh, seven full-time employees worth of effort expended into it and can afford to outspend me 10 to 1 on customer acquisition because they don't have to be profitable at it. Um, and, yeah, that's not a happy place to be. So don't do B2B. Do so, sorry. No, sorry. No. <laughs> do B2B. Do not do B2C. Don't do B2C where you'll be competing with uh, people who can afford to, like, um, lose money on every sale and make it up on volume or at least will until the Series A crunch kills their company. Yeah. Um, and, again, don't want to rub it in the nose of these guys. I'm, I'm sure they're great people. And uh, you know, No, no. I, they... I think they are great people. I think it just was... Not really shitty luck, but just shitty circumstances for them. Yeah, it's um, and they did have a great product. And it's the you know it's the model like venture capital, nine companies out of every ten company uh, ten companies are going to fail. But if you invest in enough of them, eventually you invest in Facebook or Google, um, which is a great outcome if you have a very large portfolio. Perhaps less of a great outcome if you're confined to any one company. Exactly, exactly. People often ask me, by the way, and this is really on a tangent, but. It's my first job in the industry. Should I get a job at a um, at a funded startup, or should I get a job at like a you know Google or Facebook or whatever, or should I do the uh, the solo bootstrapper thing, mm-hmm. or should I get a job as a programmer at a non technical company? Wow, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hard, hard question. question. We should do an episode about that. I'm going to table that discussion yeah, for a while because it will make this uh, podcast go like six hours long. <laughs> <coughs> Okay, so what was the next on the agenda? Um, I think we we're going to talk about what is following up the lifecycle email course. Yeah, so I originally uh, announced I was going to launch it in August, and then stuff happened of a health issue. I might talk about that later, but um, yeah, uh, it didn't happen. So knock on wood, end of November slash early December, I hope to launch a uh, video course similar in character to the lifecycle emails product, uh, talking about conversion optimization, and A-B testing for software companies. Uh, this is something I did a lot of work on with in my consulting days, and as we've mentioned previously, I've quit consulting, but people uh, continue coming back to me and saying, hey, you know, what would you do on our page, like, quickly, just to increase sales of the product or to increase the number of uh, trials we get on a monthly basis? And I think that's something that I can uh, probably have some fairly decent advice about. Oh, yeah. um, I do it informally for friends still and have... Um, uh, racked up some uh, very fun anecdotes that they've, uh, they're going to let me share publicly, so I'm going to uh, productize that and see where it goes. And then probably pitch it at the uh, price points roughly similar to the um, lifecycle yeah. email course. Um, I guess I uh, don't want to talk about too much of the plans there because I uh, do need to have some reason for you guys to come to the landing page. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I'm not um, trying to sell you stuff, but I am trying to sell you stuff. But I'm only trying to sell, like, actually 2% of you stuff. Yeah. Um, the, the funny thing about uh, courses like this and whatnot, it's like, okay, there's whatever, is it now, like 8,000 people on my email list, 1,000 of you opted in for a um, dedicated emails about this product and this topic in uh, specific. And um, nowhere near, like, 8,000 or probably even 1,000 folks are going to buy it. So want to produce as much value as possible for everybody in the audience. 
with the knowledge that um, want to like spike the value creation with regards to say 50 to 500 of the audience who are going to like whip out the company credit card and yeah. uh, plunk down the you know 500 bucks or 2000 bucks or whatever it is that it eventually gets priced at so uh, this is a great topic for our, our next podcast if our next podcast is not what we had just talked about um, which is the idea of and Nathan Berry talks about this a lot marketing by telling everything you know teaching everything you know and I think mm-hmm. we've touched on this before and not even marketing just tell people everything right and be very open with what you do and um, I don't know about everything honestly. maybe not everything I'm but not, like I was a let it all hang out guy back in the early early days of bingo card creator and as I'm older and wiser now there are some little asterisks I would put on like be totally 100% radically transparent and give everyone access to your like QuickBook quick book file I, yeah That's, that is yeah um I was, I was thinking more of, like, knowledge instead knowledge. of, like, hard okay. hard numbers. So, knowledge, yeah. There's this, I don't know, is it, like, some sort of uh, picture book, story book for, written by hippies about cold... <laughs> Have any of you ever read this book where there's, like, the warm fuzzies and the cold pricklies, and you give warm fuzzies to people, and, wow, you give a warm fuzzy to someone, you magically get a warm fuzzy yourself, and cold pricklies, they don't work like that. That sounds really familiar. I don't think I've read it, but... I, I really think there is actually, like, some hippie book that says this. Um, <laughs> teaching people things in the B2B context is totally, like, a warm, fuzzy generator. Like, you do not lose stuff by by having your information out there. I've had consulting clients where um, I was doing a presentation internally at a consulting client, and they said, uh, we would like to tape this on behalf of the, um, you know, people at our company who are not, like, currently at this presentation. But we're sensitive to your desire to not um, cannibalize the uh, the value of your advice, so we won't tape it if you don't want it. If you're not okay with us taping it, I appreciate that. That's very thoughtful of you. But from my business perspective, like not only do I want you to tape it and show it to everyone who works at the company, if it's okay for you, let's put that online. Let's get that in front of a hundred thousand people because nothing about my business is going to get worse if it, you know, gets publicized that uh, this is the advice I would give your company. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And we, we should definitely go into that full because there's a ton we could go into with that. Um, one of the things I wanted to next mention... Next podcast, then. Yeah, next podcast, yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention, going back to the um, the A-B testing course, your next course that you're, that you're putting out, is... So I, I launched my product on Monday, and, you know, I, I've been doing this very similar consulting to you for about three years now. So mm-hmm. conversion consulting, okay, this page doesn't work right, this is how we need to structure things to funnel... Can I time out here for a second, by the way? So Keith and I ran um, consulting businesses that had different core client bases, but very similar levels of sophistication involved in the sort of advice we would give clients. Um, roughly similar price points, I would say, yeah. like, you know, within an order of magnitude of each other. Um, roughly similar similar uh, geographic distribution of customers, yeah. you know, Japan, the United States, wherever the work found us, yada, yada. Um, one thing that was not the same about Keith and I's businesses is that I have, like, kind of a quote-unquote internet profile, and Keith, a little bit less of an internet profile. I, like that's an understatement. Profile. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, just want to, like, throw this out there. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so so I'm looking at Keith and I'm thinking, can I name a number? And Keith is, like, doing that. No, no, don't name numbers. But let's just say his business is bigger than mine by a lot. And there's a lot of people who tell me that, oh, you know, consulting is great if you're internet famous like you are, but you can't be a 
high-end consultant, unless you're internet famous, and we have like the you know disproved by counterexample. I have no English here. website. Yes, the the new product I have is all in English. But I have, for my consulting, I have no English website. My only website is in Japanese, and I will promise you that the majority of my clients are not Japanese, nor can they read Japanese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Keith's um, uh, the primary customer acquisition channel for you was oh, did you get your job as on Odesk? No, that was not it. <laughs> right. No, it's actually doing a really, really good job for clients getting referrals by word of mouth. And, you know, you don't need 100 million clients to build up a very nice consultancy for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But what, sorry. What, Anyhow. Yeah. What, what I was going to get into there is so I launched my first product. Um, and the blinders you get when launching your first product is absolutely crazy. So it's very, I don't want to say it's easy. It is, I'm used to going into other people's systems, into other people's sales funnels, and saying, okay, here are your main bottlenecks. Um, and that, um, one of the reasons is that I'm not super close to that funnel, right? I haven't been working in it for three years, five years. So the thorns stick out like you wouldn't believe to me. Um, when you've been working on a product, we've been working on this product uh, two years now, and when you've been working on it as long as that, you notice that the thorns just don't seem so thorny. And I'm looking at my own conversion pages, I'm like, these are totally not optimized. I should really get a consultant to come and look at these. Yeah, you guys laugh, but man, you get banner blind, like the equivalent of banner blindness when working on your own product. I was once working with a uh, consulting client, and I said, um, we were looking at maybe the sign-up page or something, and I said, well, decisions X, Y, and Z that you're making on the sign-up page are clearly suboptimal, and let's uh, do something about that. They're like, really? I copy-pasted that from Appointment Reminder. I'm like, what? No, you didn't. And I looked at Appointment Reminder. Oh, God, you did! <laughs> what idiot was in charge of this website? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I work with... Um, I A lot of my clients are really, really savvy. They are really, really smart people. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing because the mistakes that really, really smart people can make with their own product because they are so entrenched in it Mm -hmm. is just mind-blowing. Or there's, you know, so much going on in the business. Um, We often don't make optimal decisions about where we spend our limited pool of resources Mm -hmm. on running a business. So if you were, like, homo homunculus or economicus or whatever, the the rational decision-maker, if if you were Skynet... You just decide, I have 100 points of resources to distribute among all the aspects of the business. You would distribute them at the points of like maximum leverage for the business. And that would mean that everybody's business would be like 99.95% spent doing conversion optimization on their sign-up page and 0.05% on doing everything else. And all my consulting clients just gave me the death glare there. All of them disagree with me on that one. Okay, I get my own little take on things. But none of us actually like you know, distribute our resources rationally like that. Instead, we, you know, we do a combination of the stuff that makes us feel good, the stuff that we think is important, but which is actually isn't important, and then just, like, the day-to-day grinded out of the business where it's not urgent, but it has to be done anyhow. Like, you know, responding to emails from people who couldn't figure out how to click confirm um, into the email list or, um, you know, or doing stupid, like, business administration stuff that we should outsource but haven't figured out how to outsource yet, like bookkeeping for me until I got a bookkeeper or, um, oh, stupid waste of time that just chewed up two days of my life. I lost my wallet. And so um, because 
I have not yet delegated my relationship to the bank to anyone else. I had to call 13 banks and say, please reissue my credit cards. And now after they get reissued over the next week to two weeks, I'm going to have to you know, retype them into 50 systems. And that is obviously not going to be the core source of growth for any of my businesses this year, right? But that happened. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, um, <laughs> something derailed. Sometimes it's controllable, right? Like, you know, I've spent... Lots of time this year. What's something that I did and I should have known wouldn't be worth nearly as much as working on conversion optimization or whatnot? Mm -hmm. um, for example, building my own um, drip course delivery system, like Keith was talking right. about. I, I scratch coded that in Ruby on Rails because I thought I, in, someone approached me, uh, Ryan Felk actually from Gumroad, approached me about maybe using Gumroad for it. Like, and this is funny because it's something I would make fun of if I had posted it on a Hacker News. But since I said it, said it in real life and didn't immediately downvote myself, I actually like you know said it. Yeah. You know, oh well, you charge five percent of the sale. I don't think it's worth five percent of the sale. Instead, I'm going to spend weeks of my time implementing it from scratch in Ruby on Rails and doing half as good a job as you guys could do at uh, conversion rate optimization. The Gumroad purchasing experience. Oh my, it's, oh my god. It is so the best good. purchasing experience I've ever had. In my life. I, I bought, um, I've been looking at Meteor and uh, Sasha Grief uh, made a Discover Meteor online course, which is great. And I went to buy it. And the checkout experience was so nice that I emailed Sasha and said, that was the best checkout experience of my life. That's how good Gumroad is. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely, it is amazing. Like, they're, they're more like towards the, you know, Amazon. And Amazon has, I don't even know how many hundreds of millions of dollars of time mm -hmm. invested into making the checkout experience, like, making shopping actually fun. Um, I, I think it's easier than Amazon. Yeah, I think, I think it is quite easier than Amazon. But, like, on the scale of things that people have probably used. Right, you know, exactly. Amazon, easy to check out with. They remember your credit card. They do all the all the quote-unquote obvious UX tricks mm -hmm. that are not obvious at all. And there's a lot of businesses that you do business with where it's like, oh my god, what idiot made these decisions? You know, it's some junior engineer because they don't have a UX guy on staff or they just don't care about it. There was a, a hotel that I was trying to give them $4,000 for you know a hotel stay, and they wouldn't take my $4,000 because they said, your credit card is invalid. And I swear, I retyped that thing 15 times. And I finally figured out by, I kid you not, manually inspecting the effing JavaScript that the thing that was making my credit card invalid was putting spaces in between, like, the four digits, digit, right. like, groupings on a credit card. Was that a Japanese company? No, it was an American <laughs> company. multi-billion dollar American company. And I wanted to take my laptop and throw it out the window because of... The, the do you hate your customers? It's, it's, and it's such a solvable problem. It's such a solvable it's problem. <sighs> yeah. I think I should call them out. Starwood Hotels. Really? Fire apartment. Really? Really? Fire I hear great things about them all the time. But they, they not have, their online service. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, you know, um, the reason I use Starwood Hotels is a mutual friend of Keith and I said, oh, they've got the best credit card slash reward perk thing ever. So Which they use that. <laughs> and they do. They really do. They do have a great perk system. Yeah, I did lose the credit card, but hopefully it will get reissued eventually when <laughs> the gets me that small envelope. Anyhow, um, but the website. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, JAL is actually just as bad. They um, don't, they have not realized that there's a space between my first and middle name, and in per inserting that space will not oh, allow Oh, don't it. get me started about names. <laughs> I, 
we, we, have, we've done this post a couple of times. I have the entire list of 40, 40 falsehoods programmers believe about names. Um, but it bit me again when I was getting my credit card reissued. Can I just go on a little rant here about... Uh, please, please. Life, the universe, and everything. I think we're living in dystopian cyberpunk futures already. And we just don't realize it yet because our lives are like, pretty livable on most days. But right now, if you don't exist in quote-unquote the system, you are just totally effing screwed. And this doesn't affect us middle-class Americans or Japanese people that often because we're middle-class and by definition we are in the system. But if you're not in the system, welcome to Kafka. Oh man, it's so bad. I had a bank. The bank could not accept my report of losing my credit card, which was in the wallet that I lost, without photo identification from me, which was also in the wallet that I lost. And this is despite me being a customer of this bank for 10 years. And the manager knows me by name. It's like, I'm sorry, Mr. McKenzie, but it's just procedure. I can't take this down unless you show me your card to let me know that you are the same person who's been coming in here in the last 10 years. And this is in Japan, by the way, where it's like, there are only two white people in this town. It's either Keith or I. Yeah. And, okay, and people we still mistake us. And people <laughs> mistake us. You know, he's got a beard, I don't, but yeah, whatever, all white people look like to us. Uh, oh, God. Anyhow. But, man, and uh, it makes me... This topic almost makes me feel mar Marxist, because none of the you know, people who are doing uh, scholarly literature on, on like, the differences between classes would be surprised in the least by, oh, you know, poor people don't have photo identification on them all the time necessarily. It was middle-class people do, and so middle-class people don't see like you need um, uh, photo identification to vote as a big imposition, whereas people who are uh, not as acculturated into the middle class might see that imposition, yada, yada, yada. But man, you know, when you get like kind of broken out of the comfort zone for you, you realize how totally non-fault tolerant a lot of the systems are right now. Mm -hmm. Like losing your identification systems, very non-fault tolerant. Um, systems that we design too, like, you know, I don't want to sound like a Marxist af academic and just say the system with capital letters as something that is controlled by other people and that, uh, we are responsible for this kind of user experience in our own stuff. Um, so as programmers, we often think that we understand like, you know, what email addresses we use, what uh, usernames we typically use, what email address and password we use to sign up for a typical website. This is a highly questionable assumption for many user populations. And I will bet you that if you don't remember the email address that you use to sign up to your own website, that the experience you get is totally sucky. Mm -hmm. Like, just try that. Like, pretend, okay, I don't remember what my email address is. What's the, like, recovery path from that? Because for a lot of services, there is no recovery path. You go to the website, you type in the email address and password you think you use, and it tells you one of those two things is wrong. Is wrong. I'm not going to tell you which. <laughs> and you can type stuff into that thing all day, and it will not help you. Then you go to the password recovery form and type in your email. And often, for spurious security reasons, the password recovery form will not tell you whether the email you typed in is actually an email they have on file. Yeah. Which, by the way, I want to punch in the face anybody at your company who made that security decision. The reason being that, okay, <laughs> if I type in my email address into the password recovery form and you tell me, yes, you got the email right, the email is on the way. Uh, to do the password recovery. Yes, that does disclose the existence of the that email address being in your database. 
which could leak that to an attacker. But on the other hand, if you only allow an email being in your database once, the fact that someone can use your sign-up form and see whether the uh, email has been used already leaks the same information. So it's just pure spite and hatred <laughs> for your customers that you I don't tell them that email address is wrong or that email address is right. I had a system. I, I can't remember where it was. Um, I went to get my, my password because I had forgotten it. I seem to remember which email address it was. I put in my email address. It says, we found your email address. It's on the way. All right. Wait five minutes. Wait 10 minutes. 20 minutes. Still not there. I put in another email address that is very similar, but I know is completely bogus. It said, your email is on the way. So whatever you put in, for security reasons, it would tell you that the email is on the way. Yeah. I've been involved in systems like that before. Um, or saying for security reasons, they'll say... Uh, uh, so a well-implemented variant of this will send you an email regardless of whether your, your email is in the system or not. And if your email wasn't in the system, yes, you, sign up. you <laughs> wrote it correctly, they would say, we're sorry, we didn't have any information on you. Which I was told by a security officer, this is a great trade-off. You know, it doesn't disclose the existence uh, prior to proving they actually control the email account. But after they've proven they control the email account, it's not a totally horrible user experience. But it is a totally ho horrible user experience because you have to wait five minutes for the email to show up mm -hmm. and then you check it. It's like, your princess is in another castle. Yep. Ah! And especially with um, Gmail and G apps um, supporting the plus. Yep. Like, I have tons and tons of email addresses that all go to the same place. One for each system, in fact. Oh, I have a, uh, I have a dirty confession to make about, like, the plus and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So if you actually read the RFCs for what pluses are supposed to be used for, it's pretty much just for convenience for the user. Now, I have a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast, and if you think I'm talking about you, it's not you, it's someone else that's listening to the podcast. We <laughs> think they are very smart. And sign up with, like, my name plus kalzumius at gmail.com to be able to filter it out if I ever start spamming them. Okay. But when you try to log into the system, you forget that you use the plus kalzumius. And so your email address would not actually be in the system. So what I do is my login form checks both. Takes out the plus first. Right. Takes out the plus first, tests through the existence of this, and, you know, if you provide the plus on the login form, which no one remembers to do, it will do what it expects you to. But, yeah, that saves... Um, so I have a running counter on my admin dashboard for... Uh, <laughs> the, the title above it is Hacker News U Users Who Thought They Were Smarter Than They Think who thought they were smarter than they actually are. <laughs> Currently 47. That, that, is going, that is going into my software. That is the next feature I am pushing live. Um, that is going in front of billing fixes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, so that's users acting against their own interest. But as programmers, we often act against our users' interest by making, you know, uh, processes which are not fault tolerant for a business. It's and amazing. It's the same thing with the blinders. It's like if someone had written on Hacker News that I was doing this, people would jump on him like he was rat he was raw meat and they were a bunch of hyenas. Honestly. Like I don't know. I think if someone said, Well I have a security rationale for this that would get a lot of thumbs up and then then I think a yeah. lot I think it would be very split. No. Um but I guess so the point I'm I'm saying is people will are much more critical and much more able to be critical about other people's mistakes than their own. And that's not out of spite or purposely, it's just the blinders issue, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, 
The ability to consider an issue in isolation gives you a much higher resolution into the intricacies of the problems associated with it than when you're seeing the entire freaking system at once. Right. Because when you have a system that has 40,000 lines of code, yeah, your password recovery function doesn't jump at you. It's like the one thing you should be working on right now. But, um, especially for B2B SaaSes where like the lifetime value of customers is at any given point in the thousands of dollars in terms of like future revenue from them, not having someone cancel their account because they can't figure out how to log into your system is sort of a win. So I would and encourage you to make that interaction not totally suck. And kind of harping on the um, forgotten password thing, th this is very interesting. So I always thought, who uses forgotten password? Because I have all my passwords stored in, in Chrome or in KeyPass or LastPass or whatever. Um, this is another one of those like inabilities to empathize with the user. Yes. And so I thought this until a couple of years ago when I was watching the logs because we were doing some purchase testing or something. And as I'm watching the logs over maybe a 20-minute span, I could see people, so-and-so requested password, so-and-so requested password, so-and-so requested password, so-and-so requested password. I was like, how many people are forgetting their effing password? It obviously was real users. It wasn't going at a high rate. The usernames were completely different, but people were requesting their passwords. People forget their passwords like you wouldn't believe. There's honestly some users who like passwords. They're done with that nonsense. They just jam on the keyboard, da 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 da, and then every time their session gets timed out, they request a password again. That's like brilliant. I've seen that user behavior before. <laughs> There's actually an open source project that was supposed to like support that as your primary access tool for websites, where every time you wanted a new session, you would have to click a link on your email. I don't think they got an interaction, but hmm. it's not crazy. It's, it's not crazy. It's not just okay. Close, crazy. Um, <sighs> proves you have to exist. Uh, Okay, we're, we're not going. We're not going. That, that would rattle. We're, yeah, we're that not would rattle. Uh, this is the talk about making money for software businesses and et cetera podcast, rather than the rat holing about little tiny implementation details podcast. Yeah. But so we've gone an hour and a half. Do we want to cut here, or we have three more topics? Two, two more topics. I would love to talk about at least a little more about stuff that we learned at MicroConf. I would. We too. talked about concierge. Oh God! And that's the oh big God! One, but um, let me get out my. So I took. I shit you not. 13 pages of notes in the first day. Uh, it was a two-day course? Three-day three conference? Two-day conference? Two-day conference? Okay. I have an F-ton of notes. Um, I'm flipping through them now. Is it, Was there anything that went out to you right out at front? So, I have vague memories of MicroConf Europe, partly because it was similar in character to me to the one I had attended in Vegas, and so a lot of the stuff was like, oh, it's interesting, but I've, I've like heard it once. The standout talk for me from uh, it was probably Rob Wallen going into what he did to yes. uh, 10x his business from, yes. um, you know, he bought a business called Hittail when it was at, like, uh, 1x of revenue, and I'm not sure he would be happy with me mentioning the 1x out loud, so just say, you know, some certain amount of revenue. And then over the course of the next 12 months, he went into a, uh, to a you know, build out the product, learn about the marketing approaches, and then scale those marketing approaches series of three steps that he goes into in a lot of detail to uh, increase the amount of revenue the product was making by a factor of 10, which is something that, um, well, it's a kick in the pants for me because I think that would be an awesome process to go through for appointment reminder in the next 12 months, given that I've kind of pussyfooted around for it uh, for the last three years or so. And uh, also, you know, a lot of stuff is very applicable to every software as a service business, like finding out... Um, paid channels, which actually work for customer acquisition for you, 
and you know you test six of them, only two work, and then the two that work, you throw money on them until they're not profitable anymore. Yeah. Or the general rule of thumb in software as a service that we don't grow up knowing, but you're told at some point and then find to be true, is that you want to spend one-third of your lifetime value on paid customer acquisition when you can get that, which requires you to know what your lifetime value is. Um, there's a fairly easy formula for that. As we want to talk about that, too, what it's... um. Okay, yeah, let's, your, let's, your let's easy lifetime value formula. The amount of money you charge per month divided by your monthly churn rate. That's it. Like, yeah. there's, you know, there are harder formulas that you can talk to a CPA and learn things about, like the time value of money and the discount rate and what that would do to it. Blah, 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 blah. Don't need calculus, just do the simple division. So, if your plan costs $50 a month, 5% of customers churn every month, that means 50 times 20 is $1,000, your lifetime value is $1,000. Done to spend, you know, in the three hundred dollar range to acquire a new customer. That's uh, typically something that you want to do. Exactly. If you spend eight hundred dollars to acquire a new customer, it takes forever to get payback on that, and you will uh, kind of have a cash flow deficit in your SaaS business. There are ways to get beyond a cash flow deficit in the SaaS business, but they're very stress inducing, and they make your business very, very risky in terms of um, you don't have like an ironclad guarantee from God that the 5% conversion rate, or sorry, 5% churn rate is going to be maintained over the course of the next uh, 20 months. So you generally don't want to take that level of risk in on the business, where if you're only spending a third up front, uh, there's less risk involved there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think my, my biggest takeaway from MicroConf, so I, I will be flat out honest, I am not what you would call a businessman. I am a designer and developer who... I think it's very good at finding holes in things. I find holes in funnels. I find holes in conversion. I find good technical solutions to solve business problems. Um, managing a business such as how to make sure that everyone's working on the right thing, make sure that people are up to task, is not my strong point. And I'm, Keith and I are both similar in this regard. <laughs> I don't know. Hackers in the PG sense, like we like... We like complicated systems and finding the ways they break and then breaking them to our advantage. Exactly. Whereas, uh, you know, the the mechanics of running a business is something that we just got decently good at for both of us, um, mostly out of uh, having to. And also the fact that um, if you, you know, look at what you want to get from life, the universe, and everything, or from your career, this little itty-bitty slice of your life, Maybe you want more time. Maybe you want uh, the, the foolish adventure guy. Yes, a great phrase for it. Uh, time, income, mobility are three things that you could potentially want to get from a career. So, you know, time, we are both family men. We like having uh, free times with our wives and yep. Keith's case uh, is uh, little girls. Income, the reasons to have it are fairly obvious. Uh, mobility, like we like running our business out of Japan rather than running it out of San Francisco or New York or any of the other big tech hubs. Um, yada yada yada, and they could potentially follow us along on wherever our right. laptop is, basically, right? right? So, in terms of getting those things out of your career, um, there's a bunch of levers that you can hit. And uh, both of us were, you know, I was a programmer back in the day, Keith was a designer back in the day. That's one lever you can push, and you will get a certain amount of the benefits of working uh, from pushing that lever very mm -hmm. well. But there's kind of an asymptote that you approach as you just get like 
I'm going to level up as a programmer. I'm going to learn Ruby on Rails in addition to learning Java, and I'm going to become the best darn Ruby on Rails programmer I can possibly be. Right. And don't get me wrong, that is a very successful career path for a lot of people. There's a yeah. lot of folks who are uncomplicated. They just program up to instructions that are given from them. They work at Google for you know 50 or whatever hours a week and get paid very well for doing that and love their jobs and lives and et cetera. And, and you but, don't have to limit it like that because you say they're told what they're their program, what they're giving them, they could want to be a system designer at Google. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still the same thing. And there's a very different thing between, yes, I want to work at the best of my field, or mm-hmm. I want to take that out and grow my own business. And right. that's the crux. Right. So the the trick for both of us is that we took, you know, some level of ability with our, quote-unquote, core skills, the, the stuff our uh, employers were paying us for back in the day. And then drizzle down a wee little bit, like the minimum viable business plan on top of the core mm-hmm. skills. And then um, I use the word raffle stomped when other people do it. I don't <laughs> know if I say if I'm comfortable saying we raffle stomped, but we raffle stomped capitalism basically. Honestly, if you said three years ago, five years ago that we'd be in this position, I would have laughed like you wouldn't believe. Three years when was three years ago? Two thousand ten. So. So, okay, January 2010, I think both of us put together, we're making, what, like $5,000 a month at our Japanese salary man Oh, together? Yeah. 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 So, if you involved the two of us together, $5,000 a month at a Japanese salary man job, where we were probably working 70-plus uh, hours a week Something each, like and uh, pretty miserable. Yep. I was, um, yeah, very, very miserable. Keith was, like, I was had pretty, days yeah. that were less miserable than others, but not many. Not many. Yeah. Um. yeah. <laughs> Don't become a Japanese salary man. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Japan, the universe, and everything in another version um, of the podcast. But yeah, uh, don't become a Japanese salaryman. Anyhow, um, but our careers had a fairly nice trajectory over the last three years, largely from this combination of the uh, the core skills we bring to the table and increasing that core skill set, and then marrying it to like the understanding of business and running right. business on top of it. And even without necessarily needing to be Harvard MBA's levels of you know. Adjusting capitalization tables and whatever right. they teach you to do at Harvard MBA. We have no idea, um, and that and that's I won't say that's holding back our business because obviously not, but it is holding back growth in some aspects because I don't know how to manage people uh, other than like the standard. This is how I would like to be managed, and this is how I've managed my development teams in the past. But the idea of managing an entire company where I'm managing not only projects with the developers, but also like how's billing going, how's mm-hmm. payroll going. Have you talked to the accountant about getting uh, reducing our taxes somehow? Mm-hmm. This is one reason I still don't have uh, employees, just because I'm not ready for that level of responsibility. And all my friends who have you know gone to multi-member consultancies, keeping one of these, uh, say you know you get ten employees together, and then suddenly, oh wait, you are responsible for a hundred thousand dollars every two weeks to make payroll. Yep. And if you do not make payroll, people's families starve. Yep. It's like not gonna do it. Uh-uh. <laughs> not ready to do that yet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And actually, at my old job, they offered to put me as vice president of the company. And I said, I am not willing to do that because I do not want the success of this company on my um, shoulders. I would rather go out on my own and do it. And I, I think I've done fairly well. But <laughs> yeah. anyways, going back to what we wanted to talk about with MicroConf, um, I, th- I feel so bad about this because I forgot the two of them's names. Uh, TropicalNBA.com, I think it was Dan and... Dan and Ian. Dan yeah. and Ian, thank you. From... Formerly the Lifestyle Business Podcast, now it's called Tropical MBA Podcast. Yes. Um, Very good podcast, by the way. They were amazing. Um, everyone else was, everyone was amazing. Um, but they 
spoke closest to me because they were talking about growing a business. And can you believe that was their first uh, first speaking gig ever? Really? I no, I did, I did not know yeah. that. It was amazingly good. And they were just talking about how to structure um, your business so that you don't have to deal with minutia. And they gave, they gave an example that, I, that really hit home to me. It's Steve Jobs, I mean, complete control freak, right? As much of a anal control freak as I am, there no one eclipses Steve Jobs. And I think anyone who worked with him, anyone that has read anything about him would probably agree with that. Um, so how does someone with that level of detail into everything be able to control a company with how many thousands people? Like 5,000, 10,000? I don't even know. Apple has like... X tens of thousands of yeah. employees. A lot of them are retailer retail workers in the U.S. now. But there's what let's say ten thousand engineers. Yeah, and, let's, uh, just, knowledge let's workers just say ten thousand. Yeah, okay, ten thousand uh, knowledge workers. Ten thousand knowledge workers. How would someone with that amount of microscopic detail orientedness be able to manage that? And I mean, it's obvious he doesn't manage it. But how would things get done to his specifications? And the answer is. That he and what um, Danny Ian said is he only interacted with I think they said seven um, people in that entire company out of ten thousand knowledge workers he interacted with seven people and those seven people were essentially extensions of him they were close to him they understood how he thought he they understood what needed to be done to move the company forward in his vision right or in the company's vision and um, they called them linchpin employees. Essentially, people that you can delegate an entire section to, an entire job to, who are able to think on their own for their own stuff and move the company forward in a solid single direction. And that spoke just miles to me because it is so difficult to find people like that, both who you can trust almost implicitly and who can be given the managerial task of managing another thousand people with their own linchpin employees. Right? And who also want to be employees. Like the one of the problems I've heard about um, on the grapevine, as it were, were the the kind of people who do really well. It I need a combination of the responsibility to bring this project in without much sort of management from above. You also have to be expert enough to manage the people below you and think on, quick on your feet and whatnot. Those kind of people exist, and they call them entrepreneurs, and they typically start up companies. But they yeah. often don't aspire to being you know the number. Of Three number guy, four, number yeah. Three, yeah. Number three guy in charge of server architecture at a uh, at a tech company. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So figuring out how to identify, groom, and hire those folks is a useful skill to have if you are trying to build up a large company. Right. It wouldn't be too useful for me. Anyhow, um, I think that was, well, that was my main so, point. So that. that was your takeaway from Dan and Ian's. The one I got from it was having repeatable processes for just yes. about everything. In they the called company. them SODs. I call them. Um, in my business, we always call them SOPs, Standard yeah. op- Operation Procedures. So this is something I pulled off their podcast actually a couple months ago, and it uh, made my life much, much easier um, because it allowed me to get one task that's recurring and obnoxious off my plate. That is, um, oh shoot, broke a rule uh, for my SOP there. I should never call customer support obnoxious. <laughs> I love my customers. I love my customers. I love my customers. I've been supporting Bingo Card Creator as the literally the only person who ever sent an email with regards to Bingo Card Creator from June so July first, two thousand six through approximately July first, two thousand thirteen. That is seven eight years 
of handling all the customer support load. And I want to make a quick disconnect. Um, Patrick always talks about um, how he always talks about emailing the support, and it's like the blue Googles or the green Google, haha. This is a 40,000 a week consultant answering emails from 50 or 60 year old um, elementary school teachers who don't understand what the blue Google or the green Google is. I, I just want to I just want to throw that out there yeah. real quick. And so it wasn't a huge amount of time, but it was me needing to be uh, shackled to you know a machine every day to answer the email within my uh, not quite promised but implicit like 24 hour want to get to emails within 24 hours generally or 24 business hours. Um, stopped doing the email on weekends. That was one of the best decisions ever. But anyhow, so if you send an you send an email during the middle of the work week, I want to have a response to you the next day, your time, in the work week. That's my desired level of service for this product. And so I would get, um, let's see, eight years of them. I've probably answered 10,000 emails about Bingo Card Creator, which means literally hundreds of times I've explained to someone how to reconfigure a printer or how to use the I forgot my password button or, you know, dot, 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 uh, dealing with the technical support issues of a largely non-technical customer base with a product which, um, while it's been improved over the years, is not the world's easiest to use um, because my skills do not generally design in making wonderful, easy-to-use products. And, yeah, I'm done with that. <laughs> and the way I'm done with that is, uh, so I have a standard operating procedure document, which is, like, two pages long, the first page is sort of like a statement of principles for the company. My principles is that, um, and I joke about it, but I generally do love my customers. I got into the business in the first place because I have awesome respect for teachers. I want to make their lives easier. Yada, yada. Um, you know, uh, that uh, I would always a customer rather, I would always rather satisfy a customer rather than having their money if, if those two ever come into conflict. So, you know, I have a hair trigger um, and the refund button. If they say, you know, a minor issue caused them to miss the class period that they wanted to do the event in, very sorry for that, I'll happily refund them for that. So just state, like, 12 principles of roughly general nature about that. And the second page of the document was, here are my top 10 customer support issues that I've dealt with for the last eight years. And I gave this to my uh, virtual assistant who had hired through uh, Pepper, uh, Google for Pepper Philippines VA stands for Virtual Assistant. You'll find their website. It's named after Pepper Potts, by the way, which don't tell Marvel that or they'll get the <laughs> hammer of Thor dropped on their heads. But um, anyhow, uh, so gave it to my virtual assistant and said, okay, here's my, here are like the general principles I run my business by. Here's 10 specific issues that uh, customers often come to me about. And here's Snappy, which is the uh, system I use for ticketing. Uh, it's a very good kind of lightweight, low ceremony way to uh, share an inbox, basically. You are now tier one customer support, which means if someone has an issue, uh, you are like the first point of contact. If it's one of these ten issues, deal with it according to the rules that I've set out here. If it's, you know, if it's something like they need a refund, then tell them, um, look, Patrick will process you a refund within the day, and here's a couple of words to say that, but one of my principles. It's like, we do not copy-paste stuff. We are humans talking to humans. So I'm very good on that. And uh, so I gave it to my virtual assistant, and I said, okay, and this this document is a living document. If we discover that there is an 11th most uh, common customer issue that you can deal with using our tools, or we can build you a new tool to deal with, 
we'll add that to the document such that you know the business grows over time and that this can be um, if I need to get a different virtual assistant or a different employee doing this in the future we can uh, have them start where you left off and then for the first couple of weeks I kind of sat in when she was doing these tickets so you know she would write the response to the customer and then I would take a look at the response she had written and said okay uh, sugar certain name sugar uh, uh, thanks for writing this response to the customer. I have uh, a bit of feedback for you on how to handle the situation in the future. Great job. And then after that, it was just kind of you know passive monitoring for okay, sugar is pretty much keeping keeping it up. And after that, it's no monitoring. Like there's, I don't even know how many tickets we dealt with this week. And honestly, unless something happens, I don't care um, because she is perfectly capable of handling that by herself. And apparently, she rather likes it. And you know the. Um, money works out very well for her, very well for me, so yay. So I now deal with, uh, went down from maybe 20, 30 issues on being a card creator per week to two to three, mm. which also means that I can afford to often, you know, just not check email for tape because probabilistically there will be no email that got past sugar. Yep. Which is nice. And this is something that, you know, I'm now thinking of, okay, what other stuff can I systemize in my business? And it's interesting, um, as a consultant, there's a lot of the day-to-day stuff that can be systemized. And um, Dan and Ian gave the same thing where they said there was something, they were posting a blog post or something, there was something, some part of the business where they were like, only I can do it. And they had a consultant come in who was good at writing up these SODs, and he says, well, there's 12 steps. You can replace this entire thing, all your thinking, in 12 steps. And so he wrote out the SOD and he says, give this to anyone, and they can reproduce exactly what you were doing. Yeah, as soon as you can, uh, this is uh, a cycle I've gone through with a lot of people, but, you know, um, in the beginning, you know, for any sort of new operation your company is doing, it's just you, like, throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, using your magic entrepreneurial powers of deduction. And then after you, um, you figure out what sticks, you describe some theory of why that works or some process of how it works and you operate on the process and see if, see if the process still works without you using you know constant levels of uh, supervision or decision making authority on it. Like, is the process at least as good as me? Um, and if the process works then you have options of giving that process to another person or maybe totally automating the process. Exactly. exactly. And then you know you move on to okay go to a different high leverage area of the business and throw stuff to the wall and see what sticks. And like Patrick said with um, with pepper, pepper and sugar, I love that, um, the documents are living. So this isn't something like, now that I've said it, we can never change it. This has to be the way it does. If things aren't working with the person who's in charge of it or they know of a better way, then you change it. Yeah. You find the better way to do it. This is one of the nice things about not rushing to automate things. You know, oh, I'm a software guy myself. I know we have this... We love automating stuff. Right. So there's a lot of issues where it's like, okay, my first, my first inclination for how to, um, what's an actual, actual thing that I would think should be automated. Um, how about updating a? This is something I do a lot. Updating a registration page for a once a month webinar. Okay, yeah, that sounds great. Let's make a data description language or a. Uh, a DSL, a domain-specific language for generating one-time webinar things, mm-hmm. which we will uh, add a cron job to to automatically update this thing. Yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. So, wait wait wait. 
going to spend 10 hours of work, which we could be doing optimizing landing optimizing pages. Optimizing landing pages, yeah. The high leverage stuff in the business. And instead, we're you know throwing it into automating this thing that really doesn't take all that much time or require all that much like brain effort. Rather than doing that, we'll just describe the process for doing it and then hand it off to somebody who um, has much less pressing demands on their time than we have. Mm. And then... If we need to change that procedure, it's as simple as changing our minds and changing the document Instead rather than having code. to like rewrite code. And because default to not rewriting code, because code after you've written it, um, it's nice that it keeps executing for forever. The downside is it keeps executing for forever. You need to maintain it. There's going to be some sort of technical debt that you built into it. Yeah. You're going to need to make you know make sure that system security stays patches. running for the rest of your life, add the security patches, yada yada yada. Yeah, it's really... There's definitely times to write code. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're both in the software business. But um, I try it with people first. Yeah. Um, I think... And that's, and that's another reason to do concierge onboarding time. That story back to an old, exactly. an it's old like, one. What is like, the amount of time it would take for you to create an import function or to create guiders or all that? And what is the amount of cost it would take for one of your support staff to just take half an hour to walk everyone through? Mm-hmm. Or if you're not, you know, in the early days of a product, if you're not sure... Um, like, should my concierge onboarding be me hand-holding them for an hour through the entire setup process? Should I do the setup process by myself? Should I just ask for their data and import that for them? Should it be me doing a guided tour through only the um, a demo of the product but not actually using their data? Dot, dot, dot. What is the optimal way to get people through this funnel? Yeah. Like, in the early phases of the product, like, building those things out in parallel would be a whole lot of engineering expense. Where if just trying it, like, okay, I'm going to take five customers and do them through my first idea. I'll take five customers, do them through my second idea. Take five customers, do them through my third idea. And see quantitatively and qualitatively, like, was the experience useful for the customers? Did they understand what was going on? Does it seem to be working for me? And then for the stuff that is working, invest in automating that or in making tools to semi-automate it. Right. The mid-touch. Oh, I love the, the mid-touch. Touch. Yeah. Okay, I think I we're think coming we're up on almost two hours. Two hours, hours so that's right so a good point to uh, kind of cut it off. But, if, you, um, if you've stayed with us this long, um, we applaud you. We applaud you. That yeah, there we go. All right. <laughs> yeah. That was not canned clapping, by the way. That was actually us clapping. We are still the lowest ranked podcast on the internet with our regular every three months or so <laughs> cycle. And uh, we've been doing this for what two years now? And I think we're on episode eight. Yeah. Yeah. There have been some like less official ones in the middle there, but yeah, about episode eight or so. Anyhow, um, thanks very much for sticking with us, guys. Uh, we will see you next time. Same bat space, same bat channel. You can check out Keith's product, uh, Summit Evergreen, at summitevergreen.com. Yep. Uh, my email list is at training.calzumius.com. Good stuff coming to that in the near future, uh, including about my new product launch, which will knock on wood happen at the end of November, early December. And uh, what else did we mention? Uh, CreditCardJS.com. And, Check them out, yeah. And uh, as well as Stripe's one, uh, which and is stripe.payment. And we will put links to all that stuff in the show notes. Thanks very much. And thanks very much for sharing your time with us. And we'll see you next time. All right. Have a good day. Cheers.